Welcome back to Chat with the Designers, a weekly technical discussion forum for amateur radio homebrewers and experimenters, with your hosts, George, N2APB, and Joe, N2CX. Good evening to everybody. This is the April 10th session of Chat with the Designers. I counted up the number of sessions that we've gone through now, and I think we're up to 19 different topics, as you can all see on the uh, corresponding webpage that we have for Chat with the Designers. This is um, your host, George N2APB, and co-host is Joe N2CX. And as I mentioned, each week we present a topic that we think is of interest to a great many. It's at least of great interest to Joe and myself, and we enjoy sitting around here on TeamSpeak for the next hour or so, discussing in a rather informal way the topic du jour. Today's topic is a real treat that we have for everybody, we think, and that's basics of oscilloscope operation. And we have with us as a as a guest presenter and hopefully a, a longer-term attendee as when he can, is Alan Wolk, W2AEW. And Alan um, actually volunteered and seen and hearing a bit of uh, our podcast that we have posted uh, after the sessions. Alan thought that we might all enjoy listening to a bit of his overview of the oscilloscope basics as this is a topic that's very near and dear to him. He is a, an applications engineer and for uh, Tektronics. So what better topic here to share with us? Joe and I and Alan were chatting the other day, and we were kind of musing as far as would this indeed be an interesting topic for the group, and we really felt that it would be. I sort of commented uh, that, in my opinion, there's probably three or four different categories of us hams with respect to oscilloscopes. One is those who do not have one and maybe always wanted to get one or were confused by it and they just didn't know which one to get. Kind of expensive and are the old ones as good as the new ones and things like that. The second category are those that have it but don't know how to use it. They have some kind of an oscilloscope and I'm turning around here and I see in an old oscilloscope that I have a Tektronix 465M is what I have. It's an oldie but goodie and it's been on my bench for years and years and years. But uh, there are some guys who are not familiar with the controls, and they uh, it just sort of sits there. The third category would be those who know how to use it, and I put, kind of put myself into this category. I'm an electrical engineer by training and long career, and I, I feel pretty comfortable around the scope, and I use it quite often here on the bench uh, to great benefit. The fourth category is, in my opinion, uh, those who are really expert at using scopes whether it's a digital scope or an analog scope, and understanding sampling, understanding the waveform and the triggering and multi-channel and delayed channel, delayed trigger type of usage, all has benefit here on the bench. And, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not in that category. So I'm kind of looking forward to tonight's session. And I would bet that everybody here is one of these four groupings that I kind of outlined. So I'm looking forward to the session. I'm really glad that Alan was able to uh, to join us here for this evening. Take a look at the references that we've got. Take a look at uh, the YouTube presentations that Alan has already on the internet. And you will be astounded, I think, by, first of all, Alan's, the quality in his of his presentations and the command of his knowledge of the oscilloscopes and how, to, how average hams like us here might indeed use it to our benefit. And then uh, I think you'll be just really in, enjoy the presentation style that Alan has. Joe, before we get started, did you want to kind of toss in something here to help set the stage some more? 
Sure. We always try in these uh, in these sessions to present material that we think will be of general interest to the group. And uh, as George outlined, uh, there's a number of categories of folks using this scope. I've had several friends who've had them. They've always been kind of afraid to turn the darn thing on because they, they didn't know how to uh, use it. I was fortunate. Uh, I had a an Elmer who, who showed me early on how to use them. And for those who work on the bench, they're invaluable. You have a good scope, you know how to use it. <laughs> you turn the darn thing on and, and use it all the time. Use almost as much as a uh, millimeter. It's a very valuable piece of equipment. It tells you a lot about what's going on with your circuits. You know, kind of like a TV looking inside uh, what's going on. Very good tool, excellent tool. And as George mentioned, we're honored to have Alan pitch in and give everybody an overview and talk about just how scopes fit into being used with, with the electronics we deal with all the time. Okay, Alan, take it away, my friend. All righty, very good. Well, uh, good evening to you, George, Joe, and uh, and everybody here. Looks like we got a pretty good crowd. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. Just a little bit more background here. Uh, actually, the presentation that is in uh, the session notes is actually uh, actually comes from a class that I uh, helped to teach uh, last year to the New Jersey Antique Radio Club, and uh, you know, in, friends with a lot of the members in that club. And uh, what I learned from them was that uh, a lot of these guys that do you know servicing and uh, repair and restoration of these antique radios, most of them do it with nothing more than an old signal generator and a uh, an old Simpson 260 volt ohm meter, and uh, you know, and, and come to find out a little bit later that most of them actually have a scope, but most also didn't really know how to use it, so they never did. So we said, you know, this would be a good, uh, a good time to uh, maybe actually get everybody familiar with the scope uh, so that they're not afraid to turn it on and then break it out and actually go use it. Um, you'll notice at the top of the session notes there is a... Uh, a couple, there are a couple of links up there, one to my webpage, which is mostly ham radio related, has some links to some other things. Uh, the second link on that page that uh, is highlighted there called the XYZs of using a scope, uh, that's actually an old Tektronics application note from the early 80s. Uh, and that's really what this talk is based on. And um, Tektronics did publish a later copy or a later version, an updated version of that application note, but uh, we're not going to use that one because the later version really deals more with the, the digitizing scopes and digital scopes. And most of us, you know, as hobbyists, don't uh, don't typically have access to the digital scopes. We what we typically find at Hamfest and flea markets and garage sales are the old analog scopes. So uh, that's why this older version of the application note is actually more applicable to what we'll be doing. Uh, the third link is a link to my uh, YouTube channel, and uh, and I've got uh, a few dozen uh, videos up there dealing with various topics. Um, you know, many of them oscilloscope related, some of them not, but uh, certainly uh, welcome to go peruse that. And I'm also going to put in the uh, in the in the uh, chat window here another link. Uh, that link is uh, to the video that was taken. Uh, during the class last year, and uh, I'll warn you, it's a little over two hours long. <laughs> We're not going to spend two hours tonight, but that class is two hours long because the first 15 minutes or so was uh, it's a little bit of uh, scope history from uh, the technical director for the New Jersey Antique Radio Club, and then the last 10 or 15 minutes is uh, um, 
uh, another gentleman talking about um, kind of the history of the CRT. And the class ran a little bit long because uh, in addition to going through these slides, we also uh, did quite a bit uh, live demonstrations to kind of illustrate some of these topics, which we really can't do tonight. So I think we should be able to cover, you know, the two dozen slides or so we have here pretty quickly. So uh, anyway, with that, uh, just to be sure the audio is all good and things like that, uh, I'll just uh, ask uh, uh, George real quick if everything sounds good and we'll start uh, scrolling down the, uh, the slides here. Sounds real good, Alan. Please proceed. Alrighty. So yeah, really the deal here is let's let's understand what a scope is. Okay, and you know, just like any tool, you know, I've, I've always felt that the better you understand what the tool is doing internally and how it works, uh, the more efficiently you can use it to the best advantage. And uh, George, you mentioned you've got a 465M. That 465 series of oscilloscopes from Tektronix was probably the most popular analog oscilloscope that Tech ever made. Uh, I've got the 465B. Uh, that first slide up in the, uh, the upper right corner of that slide is actually a picture of a 465B. Your 465M will look very much like that. And actually the, the, the lower left picture is an old Allen B. Dumont cathode ray oscillograph and that was actually the first scope I ever had was one of those. So uh, that's why I put those two on that slide. So let's look down at kind of the second picture, the second slide um, of what a basic, very basic block diagram of oscilloscope is. Um, basically, there's a, uh, a, a display, obviously, and that display is being driven by a vertical section, which basically causes the beam that is hitting the display to move up or down, and that's typically in response to the signals that you're presenting to it. Then there's a horizontal section which, dri which drives the beam horizontally, and then a trigger section that kind of ties it all together. And really, the third slide uh, is is really kind of you know kind of shows how all this kind of works. So it shows a picture of a cathode ray tube. Okay, cathode ray tube is uh, basically got a it's kind of like a a picture tube, like a TV picture tube. It's an electron gun in the back that shoots an electron beam towards the screen, and it's accelerated by a high voltage. And uh, it passes through uh, what we call deflection plates, and they're electrostatic deflection plates. And the voltage difference between those plates will steer that beam up or down, left or right. Okay, so the horizontal section basically moves the beam horizontally left to right, and the vertical plates move the beam vertically up or down. So as both of these things are kind of moving, you can essentially draw out a trace onto the surface of the, uh, the CRT. And the phosphor glows and has a little bit of persistence, so you can kind of see the trail that's left by it. And by the best way I've described to people what a, uh, an oscilloscope does, is it allows you to follow and see how signals, most, most of the time voltages, but sometimes currents, how those signals are varying versus time. If you took your DMM or your VOM and you, you know, and hooked it onto a, a signal like an audio signal, for example, if it was fast enough to respond to, um, you know, the changing, you know, voltage, say, of an audio signal, okay, you'd, and you could see the kind of the meter moving back and forth very, very quickly. If you traced out, you know, the voltages at, at any instant in time and drew it out on a piece of graph paper, that's essentially what an oscilloscope does. Okay? The scope normally is pushing this electron beam across the face of the CRT 
and then the voltages you apply are going to move that beam up or down. So that way you can actually see how those voltages are changing over time. Okay, And that's really all an oscilloscope is. And everything else, all the knobs on the front panel and things like that are just controlling you know, the response of those circuits and how they're going to display your signal of interest. So looking down at slide number four that says display system, okay, uh, this kind of will start talking a little bit about the controls that are part of the display system. And that's kind of in the, the red da you know, dashed box area here. Um, these are typically the CRT-based controls. Um, intensity kind of makes sense. It's just how bright the, uh, the display is. Focus is obvious. It's you know, how sharp the display is going to be. Those are typically almost like a one-time adjustment type of thing. Uh, unless you change the sweep speed dramatically, you might have to play with the intensity a little bit. But once you've got the focus and the trace rotation right, um, uh, you know, th then you generally don't have to touch those. The trace rotation controls the tilt of the trace. And what I mean by that is if you have no signal being applied to the scope, you should just have a horizontal line. It should be perfectly parallel to the horizontal grid uh, that is on the face of the CRT. And if it's not, it doesn't mean anything's broken. It just means you've got to adjust that uh, trace rotation. And, um, and the reason for that is that some of the scopes, depending on where you have them and where, how they're facing, the Earth's magnetic field can cause a little bit of a tilt. So it doesn't mean that something's going bad, that you've got a tilted trace. Uh, now, some of the older scopes didn't have a trace rotation, and you literally have to go in and twist the CRT back and forth. But that's usually if, the, if it's a round CRT. Anything that typically has more of a rectangular CRT on it uh, that will typically have a trace rotation control. Uh, the beam finder is typically a momentary uh, push button that uh, what it does, it's designed to compress the deflection in both directions, vertically and horizontally, to a much smaller area. And this is useful if somebody has adjusted the position or something like that and the trace is completely off screen, you're wondering where to go. <laughs> Push the beam finder and it's kind of like a zoom out to see, oh, my signal is way up above the screen or it's way down at the bottom. And then it gives you a clue of where, what you have to adjust to bring the signal back on the screen. Okay. Uh, but those are, they're, again, they're fairly self-explanatory and those are typically the CRT or display controls that you'll have on most of these scopes. Um, the rest of the things are really the ones we're going to be dealing with mostly, which are um, the horizontal controls, vertical controls, and things like that, which are going to control how our signals are going to be presented to us on the screen. Okay, and the whole idea really is, is to recognize what signals need to look like and be able to recognize when you've got a problem. If a signal is clipping or you're tracing a signal through an amplifier and all of a sudden it goes away or it changes, by looking at the shape of those waveforms you might be able to determine you know, what's going on. So, uh, so we're going to start here with the, uh, the vertical system. Okay, so slide five, we're talking about the vertical system. And this is the one you're going to use most often, uh, I should say almost most often here. And the way the vertical system works is what we're going to do is the input to this vertical system is where you're going to be applying your signal of interest, whether it's probing uh, some spot in a circuit that you're either building or debugging or troubleshooting, or you might be somehow coupling in a signal from the output of your transmitter okay, or some, some other thing. It's whatever you want to go look at and go measure gets applied to the vertical system. And uh, so Typically on the vertical system, the first thing that the signal will hit is a coupling control and, a, and an attenuator. Okay, And uh, the coupling control is typically AC or DC, 
because uh, sometimes we might be looking at a signal that is a you know a small signal riding on top of a large DC bias okay very common in amplifier design um, so you may want to AC couple to get rid of the DC bias for example so you have a coupling control and that's really what that does is it basically injects throws a uh, AC coupling cap in line with your signal when you go to AC coupling. DC coupling, you're just directly coupled in and you're looking at signals with respect to ground. And there's also a volts per division control and that's essentially a sensitivity control. And you can kind of think of it as adjusting the gain of the vertical section, uh, but in reality it's actually adjusting attenuation into uh, typically a fixed gain amplifier. And uh, the reason for that is kind of take the, the analogy of a superheterodyne receiver, right? Uh, why do we do superheterodyne receivers? Well, it's a lot easier to design a superhet uh, than it is, say, a, a tuned receiver or a tuned front end, for example, because if you wanted to have a wide frequency coverage, okay, with a, you'd have to ha design a tuned circuit that can tune over a very wide frequency range with the same, with, and the, the Q would have to vary and all these kinds of things that make it very difficult. By doing a super uh, receiver, we essentially can do all of that RF processing, filtering and gain and things like that at a fixed frequency, at an IF. Okay, so it simplifies the ability to do the, your the important RF amplification and filtering by basically taking whatever signal you want to listen to and making it land in the IF, and just doing your work in the IF. So we've just basically taking a pro you know, got rid of a problem by kind of forcing all of our signals to fit at, in the IF. The, the oscilloscope front end is the same way, not that it's a superhead, but basically the, the vertical amplifier being, it's, got, it's very important that this amplifier is linear, doesn't add any distortion to your signal. Uh, it's important to kind of control its noise performance and all these kinds of things. And if we also had to control its gain, that would just complicate the matters. So typically the oscilloscopes have a generally a fixed gain uh, vertical amplifier chain. And all you're really doing is adjusting the level of the signal going into this chain. Okay, um, it's just uh, it's interesting to just understand that because it might uh, at least help you understand what these controls are doing. Because sometimes you'll see it as a when we talk about a vertical attenuator in the vertical path. And so when you're adjusting the um, volts per division, you know, control on the scope, you're essentially adjusting kind of a step attenuator. Is a way to think about it. Okay. The signal then gets preamplified, goes through a delay line, so everything is lined up appropriately on the screen. We'll talk about that. And then goes to a differential amplifier, so that now we've got a voltage signal that gets applied to the vertical deflection plates to basically pull the beam up or down in response to the signal. So that's really the job of the vertical system, is to take the signal you want to measure and, and amplify it up to the point where you might be going 50, 100 volts peak to peak, for example, on the vertical deflection plates to basically display uh, and, and move the beam in response to the signal you're trying to measure. So moving down to slide six, and before I go into the controls here, just I'll, I'll pause real shortly here if there's a, a question before we, we move on. So I want to make sure we, everybody's clear on these points before we start describing anything more. Anybody have any questions? Okay, very good. So either everybody's asleep or we're on the on the same page. So when I uh, for work as a, as an application engineer for for Tektronix, I, I give a lot of you know presentations and do seminars and measurement seminars and things like that and. Uh, and I can usually tell how effective I'm being by the level of snoring. <laughs> we try to avoid that, so hopefully it's uh, 
uh, we're not going to get any of that here tonight. So, so now on uh, what I've got on slide number six here is uh, some of the typical views of what you'd see for um, uh, the vertical controls of an oscilloscope. Every oscilloscope is different. The knobs look different. They're labeled differently sometimes. So, um, so we want to kind of talk about these various controls. Okay. Um, you'll see that uh, kind of in the, the graphic in the middle is where we kind of illustrate why or why not we may want to use DC or AC coupling. Okay. In fact, I've got a, a video on my YouTube channel that specifically deals with specific cases of AC or DC coupling. Uh, a common misunderstanding of novice users is that uh, you would use DC coupling to look at DC signals and AC coupling to look at AC signals. You know, it's, it's not like the DC or AC mode switch on your multimeter. Okay, it really is, 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 it has more to do with how you're going to represent the signals that you have. So the, you know, the, the graphic there shows a small a wiggle of, of, of a sine wave sitting on top of a large DC potential. Okay, and if you wanted to make a more accurate amplitude measurement of that, you could simply switch to AC coupling. Then essentially that gets rid of that DC component and then you can adjust the vertical scale to amplify that signal or, or make that signal larger to make it easier to make a measurement. Okay, so if you look at some of the sets of controls, um, you'll see most of them are calibrated in volts per division. Okay, and what that means is how many volts of signal at the input connector will move one division on the CRT screen. Okay, and there's typically either eight or ten divisions vertically, depending on you know the manufacturer or the scope. So, uh, and that will kind of give you an idea of, of you know you, you count divisions, multiply that by the volts per division, and there you go. You've got it. You can make a an amplitude measurement, a peak-to-peak -peak voltage measurement, for example. You'll also see the coupling controls, AC or DC. Sometimes it's a push button, sometimes it's a rocker switch, sometimes it's a rotary switch, you know, sometimes a slide switch, but you'll typically see that AC or DC coupling. Okay. You'll also see a vertical position control, and that basically allows you to basically just slide the position of that trace up or down. I find it handy sometimes, especially when you're DC coupled, to first touch the scope, the scope probe to ground. Okay, or, or not to nothing, and adjust the position to a particular gradical. For example, if I'm working on a circuit that is all positive voltages, okay, I may adjust the position so that ground is right at the very bottom of the screen or maybe one division up from the bottom. Okay, then it becomes really easy when I'm probing around in the circuit to see which, which signals have a higher DC potential than others very quickly. You can kind of gauge that. And in, when you start examining circuits, you say, oh, well, the bias of this transistor is way off because this signal is way too high, for example. I, you know, I kind of almost, what I love about a scope is it allows me to visualize what's going on in a circuit the same way that I think about it. I mean, when I look at a circuit and I'm kind of mentally, you know, analyzing it, I kind of visualize voltages as almost you know, elevations, okay, and uh, vertical position, so to speak, of voltage. So the scope just naturally fits the way I think about what's going on in the circuit. So by positioning ground in a place that's most convenient to what you're doing, you know, it might be really helpful for you to understand what's going on, you know, in your circuit. Also something to take note of here um, is that typically at the input connector for the vertical channel or channels, there'll be a note of what the input impedance is of the scope. The vast majority of the scopes that you will most likely come across have got a one megaohm resistive input impedance, so it looks like a one megaohm resistor to ground. 
and they will also be shunted by some amount of capacitance. The higher the higher the bandwidth of the scope, the um, lower that equivalent capacitance will be. Um, you know, typical of you know a two or three hundred megahertz scope is fifteen or twenty picofarads. Typical of say a hundred megahertz scope like that four sixty five. I think they're around uh, twenty twenty or twenty five picofarads. That's kind of very typical, but you'll also notice that. The higher bandwidth scopes will also typically be able to uh, give you a provision for switching the input impedance to 50 ohms, okay, you know, optionally. And uh, that's important, obviously, for high-frequency signals and, uh, you know, and maintaining impedance and avoiding reflections and all the things that we worry about at RF, okay. But the vast majority of the scopes will at least have a 1 megohm input impedance, okay. The set of controls all the way over to the left, it says vertical gain and uh, vertical input attenuation. That's kind of on an older scope. This ones that are, aren't necessarily calibrated in volts per division. Everything is kind of relative. Okay, and you can kind of tell that because it, it doesn't say volts per division. You basically just adjust an attenuation and you play with gain. And that's typically very lower performance, low bandwidth. You know, older generation. You know, 40, 50 year old scopes type of thing. Nothing wrong with them, but you're just, you're just not going to make calibrated measurements on them typically. Okay. So that's kind of just to familiarize yourself with what those vertical scale and coupling controls are. Okay. Uh, the next set of controls, the vertical modes, these are ones that can sometimes be confusing to people. And typically you'll get into what, you know, what are these modes? And this is really when you're talking about scopes that have got more than one vertical input. I mean, one of the beauties of a oscilloscope is that you can, in many cases, look at more than one signal at a time. And that can be really helpful when you're tracking down a problem or things like that, or you're tracing something out. You may want to look at the timing of one signal with respect to another, or you want to take a look and see what is this particular circuit block doing to from my signal. So you can the input and the output at the same time. Okay. So the mode controls will control how or what the scope is going to do okay, when it's looking at two channels at once. But the vast majority of the scopes out there are what we call single trace oscilloscopes. So they really only have one electron beam. So how do we make that look at two signals? Well, you have typically uh, the ability to switch between, say, channel one and channel two, or channel one and channel three, if it's a four-channel scope, for example. A lot of what you'll find, it maybe it's just a two-channel scope. So you can pick, I want to look at channel one right now, you push that button or, or turn the knob to channel one or channel two, and that just tells you which vertical input you're going to be displaying on the, on the screen. But again, many times you want to display more than one. Okay, how do we do that with a single trace? Well, one way to do it is to alternate the sweeps from channel one to channel two. So the scope will move the electron beam horizontally left to right, and during that first sweep, maybe display what's going on on channel one. And then the next sweep that goes across will show you what's going on in channel two. And then it'll revert back to channel one and back and forth. Okay. But typically, the repetition rate of those sweeps is fast enough that to, you, to your eye, it looks like there's two traces. Okay. But really what's happening is that the scope is alternating back and forth between one and two. And as you might imagine, this works really well ex until you have to get down to really slow sweep speeds. If you're looking at very slowly changing signals, for example, you know, and we're at the point where you might be getting, you know, a half a second per, per sweep, for example, you'll see the alternating back and forth between channel one and channel two. So that alt mode 
wouldn't work very well in those situations. So in those situations, you use what's called the chop mode. The chop mode, what it does is that the scope very quickly internally, maybe at a like a, a, a one megahertz repetition rate, will toggle back and forth between channel one and channel two. Okay, it does it so fast that you don't see it that happening, and all you and so you can't really see any breaks or anything going on in your signal. Okay, but it, it essentially can show you what looks like two continuous traces even at very slow horizontal sweep speeds. Okay. So the chop mode you'll typically use for very low sweep speeds. We're looking at very slowly changing signals on more than one channel. Okay, where the alt mode, once you get above, you know, a few milliseconds per division horizontally, you can use the alt mode or the chop mode. Either one. It's just that if you're in the chop mode, you start going faster and faster. You might get to the point where you're sweeping fast enough to actually see the chop happening, and then you want to go over to the alt mode. So the alt and chop are just two ways of telling the scope how to process two signals that I'm putting in and dis displaying them both on the screen at the same time. Okay. The add mode, as you might imagine, is will show you literally the sum of the signals that are appearing on channel one and on channel two. And most of the time the add mode by itself isn't really very helpful. But where it becomes really helpful is when you incorporate the invert mode. Typically these scopes will have an invert mode typically just on channel 2 okay and what that will do is just basically multiply the signal that's on channel 2 by a negative 1 okay so it just inverts the signal so now if you invert channel 2 okay and then you add it to channel 1 what you wind up with is a trace that is the voltage difference between channel 1 and channel 2 now this can be really helpful you can say well what's going on what's the voltage across this component Right, if you have a multimeter, you put the multimeter right across that component. Works fine, right? The problem is you can't just do that with a scope probe because the scope probes are always looking at a signal with respect to ground, right? The probe has got a, you know, a single point that you're making a measurement with. The other point is connected to ground. Unless you have a, a differential probe, which are, are typically active, expensive probes that most people don't have. So if you want to look at a signal across a given component, you would probe it with the two channels, both with respect to ground, and then hit the invert button on channel two and add the signals together, and now you've got the difference voltage between channel one and channel two. It allows you to see the voltage difference across a component. You may want to look at you know, how close is this transistor getting to saturation, right? You may want to probe the collector voltage and the emitter voltage, okay? And if you take the difference between them, you can actually see your VCE and how VCE is varying over time. Okay, I've got a, can I have a, a video up on my YouTube channel that describes that uh, and how that's used and shows an example of that. So this typically are the vertical modes. There's one other one up there called uh, bandwidth limit. Okay, and again, if you're looking at, if you've got a scope like, like George's, like the 465, that scope's got 100 megahertz of bandwidth, right? So that the vertical, vertical amplifier's got 100 mega bandwidth. If you're trying to look at a really low level signal, Okay, at a at a, a lower frequency, you know, you wouldn't design a receiver with 100 megahertz of bandwidth to to listen to a you know a PSK31 signal or a CW signal, right? Because your signal to noise ratio would be horrible. Okay, so <clears throat> what the bandwidth limit does is it basically cuts the vertical bandwidth down typically to 20 megahertz. Other scopes will have different settings, but 20 megahertz is a very common one. So what that will tend to do is to help to reduce some of the noise that you might be seeing on that signal by getting rid of that high frequency stuff that's out there. 
And obviously, if you've got a signal that's greater than 20 megahertz, you're not going to use that. But in some cases, uh, you may want to do that to limit the amount of noise you see on the, uh, the verticals, uh, the vertical noise that you're getting on the trace, for example. So um, let's see. Uh, that kind of covers the vertical section for now. So again, I'll take a quick break before we dig into the horizontal section here to see if there's any questions on the, the vertical section that we just covered. Alan, that's uh, probably an advanced topic, but uh, there are scopes that have uh, more than uh, two channels. One of the things you show here is four. Uh, does that mean you normally would only use two at a time? Or, um, or how would you uh, handle a scope with uh, more than two channels? Well, that's a good question. Well, yeah, the, the one example that I show there is a four-channel scope. Um, the, the alt and chop modes will apply to all four channels. Okay, so you can actually get four traces. And again, this could be helpful if you're trying to look at, uh, maybe you're looking at a, an I-squared C bus that's talking to uh, you know, a synthesizer chip or a DDS chip or something like that. Uh, that might be consume two of your channels. Okay, and then you're also looking at maybe a control voltage or you know, the, the output of a loop filter or something like that. So you can you know, probe you know, many signals all at once. And the, the beauty of it is that the, the scope will now show you you know, a time correlated view of how all these voltages are changing, you know, over time. Okay. So, um, you know, typically, you know, a lot of the scopes that you'll come across will either be two channel or four channel. Um, there are scopes that are more than that. Um, and there are single channel scopes available as well. But uh, you certainly can, um, you know, use the, you know, the alt and chop modes to look at, uh, you know, more than, more than two channels at once. And uh, again, not, it's not used as often, but it all depends on, uh, on what you're working on um, to determine what you need to look at, especially when you start dealing with some of the, the circuits that you guys are dealing with today, like with, you know, with DDS chips and the serially, serially controlled types of things, and you've got clocks and you've got data patterns, and you might have RS-232 or a SPI bus or I-squared C bus or something like that. These things occupy a couple of lines, you know, a couple of voltages you might want to look at simultaneously. Okay, so uh, the multi-channel scopes give you the ability of doing that. So does that uh, answer your question, Joe? Very good. Very uh, very clear and succinct. Thank you, Alan. Alan, another quick one. Uh, go ahead, George. Okay, thanks. In the area of uh, the input impedance to the um, to the vertical um, uh, input, um, you mentioned. Scopes are either 50 ohms or, in the case that I have with the 465, is 1 mega ohm. If one were to be measuring, wanting to make, get an accurate measurement on a, um, an amplifier chain that had an output impedance of 50 ohms, or let's just keep it simple, if one wanted to measure a power uh, going into, RF power going into uh, a 50 ohm dummy load, um, it would be my practice with the, five, with the 465 scope to place a 50 ohm um, load or a 50 ohm resistor right there at the input of my scope. Um, is, is that what you would also do if you had a 50 ohm scope input impedance or would that not be necessary? Oh, that's a great point. And uh, so if you're working on, and I would say relatively low power, you know, QRP things like we're doing here, um, you would do exactly as you said. Like I said, in most cases, the scopes that you're going to run across do not have that 50 ohm input impedance selection. 
but as you know, you, you know, if you're designing an amplifier chain that's designed to see a 50 ohm load, you want to accurately measure, say, the voltage across that 50 ohm output impedance that's connected to that stage that you're looking at. Um, so for if you have a scope that doesn't have a 50 ohm load, you can either buy or build a what's called a 50 ohm through terminator. So you would basically connect your 50 ohm coax to that stage, the output, you know, the output stage, for example, bring it up to the scope, and then put this 50 ohm through terminator. And typically, you find them as a BNC male and female connector, and it's got a 50 ohm resistor internally. And you, you plug it into the scope. You're going to have a little open stub, you know, from where that 50 ohm resistor is until it reaches the, you know, you have that little open stub that goes to the one mega ohm input impedance. But typically, that stub length is going to be, you know, less than an inch. And uh, for the HF work, primarily is uh, you know, that we're dealing with here, uh, is not going to present uh, a big impedance discontinuity. So you can you can buy these you know 50 ohm through terminators, and they're nice things to have. I've got a couple of them. Uh, but also you you know if you've got a higher bandwidth scope, a lot of times you can switch the scope into that 50 ohm mode. What you do have to be careful of is that there will be a maximum voltage or maximum power rating for that 50 ohm termination. You're not going to take your QRO amplifier you know, if you built a you know a 20 watt kicker or something like that for your for your rig. You're not going to put the output of that directly into the 50 ohm termination of the scope. You let you let the smoke out of it, and but good. So you do want to pay careful attention to that. Now, in the case, for example, if you've got an amplifier chain and maybe you've got you know three stages, and when the first stage is feeding the second stage, you've done your work there to kind of carefully impedance match maybe between two stages. You don't necessarily want to connect a 50 ohm coaxial cable right to that point, because now you're going to make that that point now, you know, you're going to put that 50 ohm cable in parallel with whatever impedance you've already kind of designed in, and that generally you know wouldn't be a good idea. <clears throat> this is where you're going to want to employ the use of a probe, and we're going to talk about those in a little bit. Um, so even though you will be looking at RF signals that generally want a 50 ohm termination, depending on where you're looking at it, you might be probing or looking at nodes that can't tolerate a 50 ohm load, you know, in term, you know, to go to your scope. So there's other things that we can do to to take a look at that. So um, so yes, that 50 ohm through terminator, as uh, George put in there, is a great uh, great accessory to have, particularly if your scope does not have a 50 ohm termination on the input. Okay, so let's uh let's move on to the horizontal section. I've kind of talked a little bit about this and hinting about what the horizontal system was and you know what the horizontal system does it typically is you know, mostly controlled inside the scope and what it's doing is it's determining how quickly we're moving that beam horizontally back and forth and typically the faster the signals that you have whether it's higher frequency audio versus lower frequency audio or maybe it's looking at uh, you're look, starting to look at RF signals or IF signals you need to go you know, you need the sweep speed to go faster and faster so you can stretch that signal out over time, right? It's kind of like if you wrote out a, a signal on a piece of rubber or on a balloon, right? And then you stretched it out. That's the same thing as turning the sweep speed up, right? Telling the, the beam to move faster so that now the voltage variations that you're getting over time will be spread out and you can actually you can discern what's going on. Okay, so the fundamental thing that's going on inside this horizontal system is something called a sweep generator. And really it's nothing more than a sawtooth oscillator. 
okay? And uh, where we've got a voltage that ramps up linearly from one voltage to another, and that ramp in voltage is controlling the position of the beam horizontally. And then once we get to the end, it drops, the voltage drops very quickly. The, that's, we call that retrace. As it brings the beam, swings it back to the other side to, the, to get ready for the next sweep, and does it so quickly that you don't see it. And then we're ready to sweep across again. So that sweep generator is really what controls that horizontal position and basically is moving the beam continually you know, across the screen in one direction and then sweeps it back really quick, ready for the next sweep. So the controls that are on that are typically things like uh, you know, some timing control. It typically it's calibrated in you know, seconds per division or microseconds per division, milliseconds per division, nanoseconds of division. And again, that's how quickly we're going to move the beam you know, one division at a time. Okay, and there's typically 10 divisions horizontally. So if you set your scope to you know, 10 microseconds division, that means one whole sweep will be 100 microseconds. So you can make some timing measurements. You can even make some rough frequency measurements by looking at how many cycles you have or what, you know, across and how many divisions you've got to go across to complete a cycle. Calculate the timing of, you know, of, of each cycle and one over that is uh, the frequency. Okay. Um, so that's, that's kind of the fundamental piece that's inside the, the horizontal system. There is an amplifier that takes the output of that sweep generator and amplifies that up enough to drive the horizontal deflection plates of the scope. Okay, uh, And uh, you really don't have any control over that. Uh, typically, you really just have control over the sweep speed, Okay, how quickly we're going to move that across. There are modes and things like that that are associated with the trigger, with the horizontal system, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and also something called triggering, which is probably the most, the most misunderstood and the most confusing thing to people. So we're going to talk about that shortly. Uh, so we move down to slide nine. We're going to talk about kind of two fundamentally different approaches to creating this horizontal sweep of the, uh, the waveform. The very early oscilloscopes, going back to like that Dumont one that I had on the front page, um, used what was called a recurrent sweep. And what that meant was that sweep generator was really nothing more than a, effectively a free-running sawtooth oscillator. Kind of like that uh, the inset there in the, the middle that says sawtooth wave. So the, the ramp that you've got coming up slowly is driving the beam horizontally across the screen left to right and then the drop down very quickly retraces it and ready to go again. The sweep though on these uh, recurrent sweep scopes runs continuously. Okay, so the problem with the recurrent sweep scopes is that when you put in your waveform you want to look at, your waveform is not going to be synchronous to this sawtooth wave. So it looks like your waveform is going to be sliding back and forth left to right because each time we do another sweep we're in a different position on the waveform you're trying to look at. So um, they're good for just getting a general idea of what's going on with your waveforms, but they're tough to, to make calibrated and more careful measurements. And what you'll also often find, and a good way to tell whether you're, you're looking at a recurrent sweep scope versus a what we call a triggered sweep scope, is that the horizontal controls, instead of being calibrated or labeled as you know milliseconds of division or microseconds of division, it'll typically be labeled as frequency. Right, so you're measuring the frequency of this, or your, it'll show you what the frequency or frequency range of this sawtooth wave is. 
and sometimes it's just a range. If you look carefully at the, the, the older controls there in the upper right, you'll see that the, the, the positions for that horizontal frequency selector knob is between, like I, I think it's shown between 1,000 and 10 kilocycles. So that means that the vernier control that's below it will allow you to adjust the frequency of that sawtooth wave between one kilocycle and ten kilocycles. Okay, so there's no nothing precise about that, right? You're just kind of getting it rough, you know. And a lot of the station monitors that you have, like the Kenwood SM220 or uh, uh, the Yesu, was it the YO601 or something? Or then there was a Heathkit one, the SP something or other. You know, they're all typically recurrent sweep you know, types of things because there's no real need to have a perfectly calibrated horizontal display and they're a lot cheaper to make. Uh, typically those that were made for you know, actual measurements and oscilloscope use gave you some means of trying to synchronize what you're looking at to this horizontal you know, sawtooth wave. Okay. And it was called a sync control, and what it would do would would take a little piece of the signal that you're putting into the vertical input, and feed that over into the horizontal oscillator to try to injection lock that oscillator to some feature in your signal, and it kind of worked. Okay, kind of did, mostly didn't, but it kind of worked. Okay, the vast majority of what you'll find uh, these days for a, a regular lab type oscilloscope is what's called a triggered sweep oscilloscope. Okay, the horizontal the horizontal position of the beam across the screen is still controlled by a ramp. But what happens now is that that ramp is only initiated in response to some event that we call a trigger. Okay, and we're going to talk a lot more about triggering shortly. So it's kind of like the trigger on a gun, right? The gun doesn't do anything until you pull the trigger. A trigger sweep oscilloscope doesn't sweep across the screen, or doesn't sweep its beam across the screen until a trigger occurs. Okay. The nice thing about that is the trigger will now be set to some feature on the signal you're putting in. So now you can actually have your waveform or your sweep locked to the signal you're looking at and get a nice stable display, you know, so you can make measurements on your signal. So you, you have the same components going on here. You have a ramp that, can, that sweeps the beam across. You've got a retrace, but now you've got a little bit of a hold off going on, waiting for the next triggered event before we sweep again. Okay. And this makes it very powerful, uh, a lot easier to take a look at signals and get nice clear pictures of what you're looking at. So again, because we start to get into triggering here, which gets a little bit complex, I'll pause real quick to see if there's a question on the horizontal sweep and what it is, and then we're going to talk a little bit about triggering. Okay, I think we're good. So triggering now, again, this is where, if we look at uh, slide number 10, let's say we had a waveform that had this kind of, uh, you know, large hump, couple of little humps, large hump, couple of little humps type of thing, okay? So what we can do is we can say, I want to start that sweep at the same, the rising edge of this larger hump each time it occurs. So now, each time we draw a trace, you know, across the CRT, it's going to be starting at the same point in the waveform, you know, the waveform assume, assuming is repetitive. So each sweep is going to pick up at the same point and overlay the last sweep and we'll get a nice stable trace. Okay. If we were free running, we might just pick up in some random spot and the thing is just going to look like a big horizontal untriggered mess. Okay. So we, we want to synchronize our trigger so we can stabilize the waveform on the screen and lock it so we can actually make some measurements on it and, and see what's going on. Again, the old recurrent sweep scopes um, 
didn't have a trigger control, they had a sync control. And again, what that, they typically had a control called, you know, sync amplitude. And what that would allow you to do is control how much of the signal that you're putting in that you want to measure, you want to send over to the horizontal oscillator to try an injection locket. Okay. Didn't work really well. It's the only control you have. Didn't work great, but it's the only thing you had. You also would typically have a way of selecting what signal you would want to inject into that horizontal oscillator. It could be from the internal, where the internal setting is typically saying I'm going to pull it off of my vertical input. A line setting means I'm actually going to try I'm going to lock, try to lock the horizontal sweep to line frequency, 60 hertz, okay? Or you might have an external connector that might have another signal that you're going to try and lock it into, okay? But, it, you know, to, by, you know, with what's going on today with everybody getting digital scopes, there's an awful lot of analog uh, scopes that you'll find that you can pick up very inexpensively. And the vast majority of them will be good, high-quality units like the like old Tektronics ones, and will be trigger sweep scopes. So there's almost no excuse to not have one. If you're going to go buy a scope, get yourself a trigger sweep scope. They they are a little bit more complicated to set up, but they're infinitely more valuable in terms of what they can show you and the clarity of what they'll give you. Um, and uh, the trigger sweep scopes will typically have a whole section of trigger controls. Okay, similar to controls that we had for the vertical and horizontal, we've got controls for the triggering. Okay, and uh, we're going to go into uh, what they are here on the next slide. Okay, so uh, what triggering does again is we're trying to lock a signal to, or lock the horizontal sweep, I should say, to some aspect of a signal you're looking at, or maybe some external signal. Okay, so. Uh, so the first thing that you pick is, what is my trigger source? What do I want to synchronize the sweep to? And typically you've got selections like internal or external or line. Internal means I'm going to trigger off of a signal that's internal to the scope coming from my vertical channel. Okay, So internal is typically triggering on the signal that you're trying to look at. External trigger means typically that it's going to try to, uh, or it's going to derive its uh, trigger pulses or trigger uh, signal from some other external input. Maybe you know, there's a, sometimes they've got a, there's a separate connector just for triggering if you wanted to use that. Then there's obviously line trigger. If you're working on something that's synchronous to line frequency, you can use the line trigger. Okay. The vast majority of the time, you're going to be using an internal trigger as the trigger source. Okay. The trigger mode. Okay. Um, as you might imagine, well, okay, if we're going to only kick off a sweep when we got the trigger set up, what happens if I don't have the trigger set up right? right? I don't get a sweep at all. That's not really very helpful. Okay. Sometimes you want to see something on this thing. You want to see a trace to see what's going on. Okay. And then you might go adjust and fine-tune things. So the very common trigger mode in the scope is something called an auto-trigger. Now, auto trigger is not like automatically set it up and it works. Okay, what the auto trigger is is it's looking for a trigger event based on what you've set up with the controls. But if it doesn't see one within a few hundred milliseconds, it says, "Well, maybe you don't have it quite set up right," and it's going to automatically send a trigger trigger anyway to the trigger system. So you'll get a sweep. Okay. So the nice thing about the auto trigger is that it's always looking for the trigger that you've set up, but if you don't have it set up right, you'll still get a sweep. So 
if you're not triggered, you don't have your trigger control set up right, you'll still get a sweep and maybe you'll get a display of a waveform that is not stable. It might be moving back and forth or whatever, and that will tell you that, okay, I have my signal here, but I'm not triggering quite right on it yet, okay? Where if we didn't have that auto mode, right, the scope the screen would just be blank and it doesn't tell you anything. So that auto trigger is actually a very useful setting, okay? And you can leave it there because once you've got the trigger set up and you've fine-tuned it, you know, then you, then it will you'll get a trigger often enough that it never has to kick one on off on its own. So the auto mode is typically where you'll leave things, uh, except for the cases where if I know I'm looking at a very low repetition rate signal, I don't want the scope to think that I don't have this, the trigger set up right. Then you would go to the normal trigger mode. Normal trigger mode means I'm only going to send the sweep across when I actually do have a valid trigger. Okay. And again, so if you don't have a valid trigger, the scope screen will be blank. Okay. But if you've got a very low repetition rate signal, you may want to use the normal trigger mode, okay, so that you, the auto trigger doesn't start sending errant uh, trigger events. Uh, the single trigger mode basically is just what it says. It's going to trigger once, send the sweep once, and stop. Okay. Back in the days before we had digital scopes and we wanted to capture a particular single event, we would hang a scope camera on the front of the scope, open up the shutter of the scope camera, do a single shot trigger, capture that event, and we got we pull the the uh, the photo out of the back of the scope camera, and we had our picture. Uh, most cases now, you'll probably never use a tr uh, a single trigger mode. Some of the scopes you'll find have a TV trigger mode uh, to, and this is really kind of a specialized trigger to pick off particular portions of like an NTSC video signal. You know, it might be the horizontal retrace, it might be um, you know, what's called the back porch, it might be uh, vertical sync pulses, horizontal sync pulses, trigger on the even or odd lines you know, through a, a, a scan of the raster or something like that. And if you're not working on TVs, you probably won't need the TV trigger either. Okay. Most of the cases, 90% of the time, you're probably going to use auto or maybe normal as your trigger mode. So, and trigger coupling is much like the coupling that we talked about for the vertical channel. How do I want to take the signal that is my source, how do I want to couple that into the trigger circuit? And for the same reasons, we have AC or DC coupling. All right? You may want to you know, reject the DC component of a signal and only trigger on its wiggle, you know, the AC, AC portion of it. So you can do an AC coupling into the trigger. It might be a particular DC level that you want to trigger on. You know, uh, whenever this voltage goes above this level, that's what I want to trigger. Okay, so then you might, you might want to use a DC trigger. Some other scopes will have other things like HF reject, high frequency reject. So you might want to trigger on the wiggle portion of the signal, but ignore the real high frequency noise that's on it. So it's kind of like a low pass filter, you know, uh, you know, type of thing. So that and that so that really just controls what the trigger circuit is going to see to kind of qualify that signal to say, yep, okay, I qualified that. I'm now I'm going to trigger on that particular event and send the sweep at that point. Okay. So um, the, the two most common controls that you'll use for the trigger are shown on slide number 12, the level and the slope. Okay. The trigger level basically sets a threshold level such that um, you know, when the voltage that you're looking at crosses that threshold, that voltage, that's when the trigger occurs. That's where we're going to send the sweep. Okay. So uh, you can adjust that up or down, positive or negative, okay? So you can trigger on a particular level. And you can actually see uh, in the two pictures that are there, if that level is moved up or down, 
Okay, you can see that you might start on a different, you might start that sweep at a different location uh, vertically, in this case on a sine wave, right? A higher, th you know, a higher threshold or lower threshold looking left to right, okay, you can kind of, you know, between the two pictures, you can kind of see that we're starting at a higher level or a lower level on the sine wave by adjusting the level up or down, okay? The slope control says that, okay, I, I'm going to trigger when I cross this threshold. The slope control tells you from which direction, okay? So that on a sine wave, we're kind of continuously moving up and then coming down and coming up and coming down. So I may set a threshold right in the middle, but I want to trigger when I come up from the bottom and cross the threshold going positive. That would be a positive slope trigger. Maybe I want to trigger on the negative edge as the signal's coming down through that threshold. That's the negative trigger position, negative slope trigger position. So very helpful, for example, if you've got pulses, like maybe on an I squared C bus or something like that. I want to trigger on the rising edge of this pulse or the falling edge of that pulse to capture the particular event I want to go look at. So by adjusting the threshold and the slope, those are the fundamental things that you'll be using along with the coupling controls and uh, and uh, you know the mode and things like that in the source to to establish a trigger that will stabilize the signal of interest. Uh, one thing I'll tell people, and it's kind of a, a kind of a fairly universal thing, especially on tektronic scopes. If you look at some of the controls, and we kind of move our way back up to slide number ten. Uh, if you look at the controls there, I can see the level control down in the bottom right corner. You can see a level control. Um, you know, kind of, the, and then the slope control and the auto controls and things like that. On a lot of Tektronix scope, it's almost universal that if you took the level control and put it at zero right in the middle, and all of the other controls and pushed them up to the top, okay, their top position, internal, auto, positive, okay, all of those, all the controls up to the top positions typically will give you an automatic trigger that's going to give you something on the screen to start with, and it's a good starting point. Okay, so if you walk up to a scope and all those, and you don't have a trace, move all those, the scope triggering controls to their topmost positions. Just kind of a convenient thing, and I don't know, I guess it was done on purpose. It's just something that uh, most Tektronix scopes I've, I've looked at, and a lot of others that are not Tektronix kind of followed that convention, so it's a, kind of a good tip, you know, if you're having trouble getting a sweep going on your scope. And then once you've got that, you connect up to your signal, and then you can start fine-tuning things like the coupling and the voltage level and the threshold and you know level controls to, to stabilize your signal. So again, the triggering controls, I actually have a, like a 15-minute video on my YouTube channel that talks just about the triggering controls, and it's all, it shows examples of all of that. That's a good one to review as well. Uh, so before we move on to probes, uh, let's make sure that everybody is clear if there's any questions on triggering before we move on. And it looks like, gee, we're at 9 o'clock already, so we're going to have to guess, go through this a little bit more quickly. So, uh, any questions? Um, Ellen, um, I was going to suggest, since this is, I, I'm finding this fascinating material, um, I'm wondering if we could impose on you to um, come back on us, maybe next time, if it's convenient with your schedule, and um, um, not be rushed. In other words, if we were to continue on and finish the last couple of slides here and go through your presentation, but I would be really fascinated by um, a session that might be called applications of oscilloscopes. How do you use the oscilloscopes in this condition or that condition? Sort of like what my question was before about using a 50 ohm terminator 
when you would use it and what benefits you would get from it. Is that something that, that we could entertain here? Yeah, I'd be very happy to do that. Um, and we just have to figure out a time. I know that uh, next week I will be, I won't be here. I'll be out of, out of state <laughs> next week. And uh, we just have to figure out, you know, what we would have to do, you know, and, and, and figure out a schedule. You know, as I think I mentioned to you, George, when we were talking that, uh, you know, as a field applications engineer, that means I'm on the road. And I, in my territory, I live in New Jersey and I cover about 10 states in my territory. So, uh, you know, I mean, anywhere from, I tell people it's uh, Buffalo to Bangor and Albany to Aberdeen. <laughs> so, uh, uh, there, and then my schedule changes every week. So there'll be weeks that I'll be available and weeks that I won't. Um, so we, you know, we can certainly schedule, you know, kind of additional follow-on sessions in the future. And we just have to kind of play it by year in terms of my schedule, which, uh, is typically, you know, I typically know what my schedule is a few weeks out, you know, type of thing, uh, subject to, uh, you know, executive overrides, you know, type of thing. But um, I'd be happy to do that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd be happy to kind of, uh, you know, pick up at some other point, um, and we could even cover a little bit more here if there was a couple of more questions. So, uh, whatever, you, whatever your pleasure is. Okay, good. Thank you very much for that. Well, then tonight, why don't we, if, if you don't mind sticking around just in 15, let's just say 15 more minutes, um, and maybe you could cover the probes and XY mode, and that would probably pretty much cover the slides. And um, in our second session, we could either pick up on questions that were left uh, um, or, or topics that were left hanging and then get into applications, but we could take care of that in a second section uh, session. Uh, so another 15 minutes here to wrap up, do you think? Yeah, I think that sounds perfect because uh, this will give you enough to kind of go go and play, you know, type of thing. So I think that's great. So, um, you know, kind of the next most important thing is how are we going to connect our signal of interest to the scope? Um, you might say, well, I, why don't I just, you know, connect up with a set of wires, okay? And you can do that in some cases. The problem that you run into is that, you know, if those wires aren't shielded, you can pick up all kinds of noise and 60 hertz hum from the, the ballast in your your lights, you know, the fluorescent lights and all kinds of things like that. And you can, you know, it might couple in signals from other places. So for real low speed applications and, you know, low impedance circuits, yeah, you might be able to get away with that. But in most cases, uh, you know, the unshielded hookup wire, you know, that you typically use like for a DMM doesn't work really well for a scope. So typically they'd say, okay, let's shield the wire. Let's use a piece of coax, okay? And that works pretty well. I mean, you can take a piece of coax, connect it up to the scope and down to your circuit, and now you've got rid of the pickup issues, right? Because you use a shielded wire. But now that shielded wire has got some capacitance to it, right? You know, 15, picofar 15 picofarads per foot or, or something more than that, maybe. And it's also kind of unterminated at the other end, but we can sometimes deal with that. Looking at lower speed signals, it may not matter about that. But you know, your circuit may or may not really care about, you know, you know, if you have a you know a one meter long piece of uh, coax, and then that coupled with the input capacitance to the scope might mean that the, that that input to that set of wires that you're going to connect to your signal might have you know 100 picofarads or more capacitance. Where your circuit care? I don't know. It depends on the circuit you're looking at, right? So in some cases that works fine. And your typical 1x probes 
that you can buy and use for an oscilloscope are really nothing more than that. It's a uh, you know a connectorized piece of coax that's got a nice little handle at the other end to make it easy to probe signals. Uh, but again, depending on the frequencies you're dealing with, the node impedances that you're trying to look at, you know, a 1x probe may or may not be appropriate. Okay. So, uh, but they are out there, and there are probes that are switchable between what we call 1x and 10x. Now, what's a 10x probe? Now, what a 10x probe is, is basically that same piece of coax, but now at the very end, right at the probe tip, there's a 9 megohm resistor in series with the center conductor. And that does two things. One is that now it takes all that capacitance from your, that, that composed of the scope probe, okay, or the, excuse me, the, the coax and the input impedance of the scope. It now puts that on the other side of a 9 megohm resistor. So it effectively isolates it from your circuit. So that's good, right? But also because it's a 9 megohm resistor, it also makes a 10 to 1 voltage divider between what you're probing and what the scope sees. And that's why we call it a 10x probe. It doesn't amplify your signal by 10x, it actually attenuates your signal by 10x. But by the same token, you've also gained more bandwidth because you have not loaded your circuit down with that, the capacitance of the, pro, of the, the coaxial cable leading to the scope. Okay? So it's good that it reduces the effect of that capacitive loading Okay, but it's bad because, you know, it, it, it attenuated our signal, which in many cases isn't bad. It also now adds a kind of this RC time constant, right? So um, if we look down, like kind of, I just kind of read through slide 14. If you look down at slide 15, it kind of gives you an idea of what's going on. And uh, it looks like I've got an, a fortunate selection of fonts <laughs> that was used on slide 15. That, uh, that didn't make it through appropriately when we pasted them into this web page here. So, but what the schematic is showing you there is effectively what that 10x probe looks like. Okay, 10x probe, as I mentioned, it's got that, it says RP, it's basically, that's the, the input, the nine megohm input resistor. Okay, that's at, right behind the probe tip. Okay, and then that's going through coax, kind of with, that's kind of shown there with the loop, with the, the red arrow pointing to it, and that's looking into the scope. So uh, what happens is that that nine megohm resistor now is essentially as you get higher in frequency, okay, that 10 or 15 or 20 picofarad capacitance that you see at the scope input, that starts to dominate the input impedance of the, sc the scope. So you wind up with this RC filter, right, between the nine megohm resistor and the input capacitance of the scope. So it's a low pass filter. Crap. Well, what did we do that for? It didn't help us. So what we can do though is put a compensation capacitor around that 9 megohm resistor. Okay, so that now at very low frequencies, okay, that 10x voltage divider is composed of the 9 megohm resistor and the 1 megohm input impedance of the scope. But as the frequencies get higher, the where the input impedance starts being dominated by the input capacitance, now the 9 megohm resistor is starting to get bypassed by that parallel capacitance. So if those two capacitances are set to the right, you know, nine to one ratio, like the resistors are, we'll, we'll wind up at higher frequencies having a capacitive voltage divider that has the same 10x attenuation. But the, the key is that, well, not all scopes have the same input capacitance. As we mentioned earlier, some might be 10 or 12 or 15 picofarads, some might be 20 or 25 picofarads. So you can't just plop 
a fixed value of capacitance across that resistor. So typically on these 10x probes, you have a compensation adjustment. And what that does is it allows you to adjust that capacitor that's around that 9 mega ohm resistor so that it properly scales with the input capacitance of your scope. Okay, And if you look on the scopes, uh, that uh, you'll see that many of them have what's called a calibrator or a compensation uh, output, a little hook you can sometimes hook your probe up to. And the idea there is that you hook your probe up to that and it, you're supposed to get a perfect square wave. And if you're you know, undercompensated or overcompensated, you will, your higher frequencies are going to see more or less than a 10x attenuation. Now the nice thing about a square wave is that the edges, rising and falling edges, contain a lot of high frequency content, right? So that um, if, for example, um, a capacitor across the 9 mega ohm resistor is too small, right, then what you have is looks like an RC filter. So the high frequencies get rolled off and you wind up with that picture that's up on the upper right, okay, where it looks like the edges are kind of rolled off. Now if that capacitor was too big around the 9 mega ohm resistor, that means the high frequencies are going to see something less than a 10x voltage, you know, 10x voltage divider. So the higher frequencies are going to be going to be passed through at a higher amplitude and you wind up with overshoot like you see in the lower left picture. So what you would typically do is leave the probe connected up there and adjust that compensation screw okay, until you get a perfect flat square wave. okay, And that ensures that the that probe now for that scope is going to have a flat frequency response from DC up to whatever the bandwidth of the scope and probe combination is. And that's something that's really important. A lot of people forget to do it and don't do it. And you start, if you were measuring just a high frequency, maybe a, a 455 kilohertz IF, for example, or whatever it might be, you might find that the amplitude is way off what you think it is, okay? And you're probing with your 10X probe. Well, if you haven't compensated your probe properly, that, that's probably why. Because, you know, 455 kilohertz is probably high enough in frequency that this compensation adjustment will matter. Okay. It won't really matter so much for audio frequencies, but once you get up above, you know, up above a couple of hundred kilohertz, it probably will matter. So uh, very important to kind of compensate your probes. And again, I've also got a, a video on that uh, up on my YouTube channel as well that shows some illustrations of that and talks about this you know, kind of more directly. There are a lot of other types of probes that are out there too. There are 100x probes, there are high voltage probes, there's current probes and things like that. But the vast majority of the time you'll likely be using a 1x or 10x probe to hook up uh, to your signals. Um, I, I do have a couple of things that we could talk, and this would be a good topic for next time where, um, you know, how, we, how might we use a scope to look at the output of a transmitter, for example. There are ways of doing that kind of very non-invasively and you can kind of look at the RF envelope, you can do things like linearity measurements and, and things like that. And that would be a good uh, kind of topic uh, for next time as well. Um, one last thing I guess we'll cover today is uh, the XY mode. Because uh, in most cases we've been talking now where the X, the horizontal, has been driven by the horizontal sweep oscillator and the trigger circuit and things like that. Uh, most of the scopes that are two channels give you the ability to work in what's called an XY mode where the horizontal position of the beam is also controlled by some signal that you're looking at. So you essentially could put a signal into the Y input and the X input and basically move the beam left to right and up and down in response to your signals. Okay, 
And this is really useful. This is typically like the trap mode or trapezoidal measurement mode of like a station monitor. If you're looking at the linearity of an amplifier, that's really operating the scope in XY mode. Okay. What's really you know, helpful or handy to look at sometimes is, you know, um, just interesting to look at is if you take the output of your stereo and you put the left channel into channel one and the right channel into channel two and you put the scope in XY mode. If you're in mono, push the mono switch and you'll get kind of a diagonal line, right? Because in mono, both outputs are putting out the same thing. So when the voltage is going up on channel one, it's also going up on channel two. So the the beam is, is being pulled vertically and horizontally by the same amount, right? So you get a, a diagonal line that would just, you know, kind of tr trace itself out there. But when, then when you switch it into stereo, you're going to have different signals on left and right, in this case, vertical and horizontal. And you kind of get that screen that I've got up there in the, uh, in the upper right, okay? I just kind of see this mess. And you can see the actual stereo separation that's going on. You could also make frequency comparative measurements, or if I put you know, signals that are supposed to be at the same frequency into the two channels and go into XY mode, you'll get this horizontal line. If there's a phase shift between them, that can change to a circle or an oval and rotate back and forth. And then you can also, if there's a kind of a harmonic relationship between those, those signals, like one is twice you know, the other one or one is three times the other one, you'll get these things that are called Lissajous patterns. Um, that can actually, if you count the lobes, you can actually make a frequency. You can see that, oh, this is three times that frequency or four times that frequency or whatever. So you can get these various things going on. And you can start using your imagination where you can do things like curve tracers. We can, we can actually, you know, if we have a sweep oscillator, we can actually sweep the response of a filter by, by uh, plotting essentially frequency in one axis and amplitude in the other. It's almost like turning it into a spectrum analyzer. So, you know, the kind of this, the world opens up in terms of things that you can do only limited by your imagination when you start thinking about XY mode. But again, we'll talk about that maybe as some more of the application stuff we do next time. But again, um, most of what we covered here is in the Scopes for Dopes video. If you want to spend the time, the, the two hours to watch that. If you view that video on YouTube, if you look at the notes that are typically underneath the video and you expand that, you click on the little more button, there's a, a timestamp based table of contents. So if you want to review just, you know, the triggering section, it'll tell you the triggering section starts at, you know, 37 minutes in. And you can take your little dragger, you know, the slider, if you will, on the uh, YouTube video and slide it out to that point and pick up right from that point. So uh, you got to have a way of, uh, you know, kind of just picking off those topics that you want to have more interest in. Um, also, again, I, as I mentioned on my YouTube channel, there's a lot of videos that talk about a lot of these topics just individually, and uh, I'm always looking for ideas <laughs> for um, uh, for videos and things like that. So if, if you got a question, shoot me an email, um, and uh, George has got my email address at the top of the uh, the notes page there, you know. And a lot of times, I'll, I may answer your question in a video, okay, and then everybody else can benefit from that. So. Um, so I see there was a question that kind of came on the chat there, links to scopes suitable for HF attempt. Um, what's interesting there is that one thing you got to think about is what bandwidth scope do you need, right? So we might say, well, I want to work on HF, so I need a scope that's at least, you know, 30 megahertz bandwidth or more, right? Um, but the reality is, is that even if you had a 10 megahertz scope, you know, if you just want to look at the RF envelope of, you know, your transmitter, you can still do it. It doesn't mean that 
like a 30 megahertz signal or 28 megahertz signal is completely invisible, it just won't be at full amplitude. Okay, so it's just, it basically just says what the 3 dB bandwidth is of that vertical amplifier. And a lot of times you're working at some IF, which is a lower frequency. So I always tell people, get the most, more bandwidth, you, or the more bandwidth you can afford, the better. And that's generally true. Um, if, you know, a 100 megahertz scope is, is ideal for doing work on HF, because even at the, the higher HF frequencies, you're still going to see signals at full amplitude. But if you, you know, if you find, find yourself a good deal on a 25 megahertz scope, pick it up, because it'll still be uh, definitely useful. Uh, for working uh, on the HF bands and things like that, you know, if you're using even as a station monitor, even like that little Kenwood uh, SM220 that you might be familiar with, uh, the Kenwood station monitor, that's basically a 10 megahertz scope, okay, in terms of a scope, okay, but it's still certainly usable to look at the RF envelope output of your transmitter at, at HF or even higher. So, uh, so uh, you know, don't be, uh, you know, I would say if you if you have a choice, always go for the higher bandwidth, but it isn't always absolutely necessary. So anyway, I guess we'll open it up for a couple of questions before we finish up here. Um, I certainly appreciate everybody's uh, time and the uh, nice, good-sized audience we have here. Yeah, go ahead, Rick. First of all, very interesting uh, uh, presentation. Very nicely done. Much appreciated. Uh, I, I was doing a little uh, internet uh, browsing, uh, looking at scopes. And I wonder if the next time you might put in a segment on uh, choosing a scope, because I can see that it starts off with uh, just a program that I can attach to my uh, audio card on my PC, uh, all the way up through things that are based on LCD displays uh, and other kinds of things. And we might take a look at the uh, shortcomings and longcomings of all of those things. That's, uh, that's actually a great topic, um, and, uh, and again, it, it always comes down to a number of factors, you know, be it budget and need in terms of what do you want to look at, okay? Um, what kind of signals do you want to look at? How many channels might you want to look at? What kind of bandwidth do you need? How much space do you have? How much money do you have to spend? Um, do you need storage of any sort, okay? You might want to think about some kind of a digital scope versus an analog scope. Um, but yeah, I think that whole choosing a scope and the differences between all these things, I think that would be a great, uh, a great future topic. I have a uh, probe question. Go ahead. Oh, yes, Don, K5KW. I'm wondering if uh, it's necessary to use a Tektronix uh, probe with a Tektronix scope, or if you can use one from a brand X scope, assuming that, uh, that both probes are, uh, are uh, you know, a one or ten times. Uh, that's a great question, and uh, the answer generally is that it's not necessary to not necessary generally to match the manufacturer. Um, uh, you will find the quality of some off-brand scope probes to not be as good as some of the name-brand probes. The thing, you, especially if it's a 10x probe, what you've got to look at is if the that compensation capacitor range is suitable to compensate for the capacitance of the input of the scope you have. Okay, and a lot of times they'll scope probes will will tell you can compensate for capacitance up to you know a range of 10 to 20 picofarads of capacitance. Now, if your input the input impedance of your scope is 25 picofarads, then you're not going to be able to adjust that particular probe. But as long as the compensation range includes the capacitance of the input of your scope, then it will work. 
One other thing I'll point out is that most of the Tektronix probes, 10X probes, have a little pin kind of sticking out along the ring of the BNC connector. And what that pin does is it tells most of the Tektronix scopes that when you plug it in, it tells the scope, hey, I've connected a 10X probe. And the scope will automatically give you some indication that the vertical scale has changed by 10x. Okay, the off-brand probes will generally not have that. So you've got to remember that if I've set my scope to 100 millivolts of division, and I connect a 10x probe, now the scope is at one volt per division, 10 times you know less sensitive. So you've got to really be you have to be cognizant of that fact. Um, kind of going tech and tech generally. You you'll get that notice. Not all the even not all the Tektronix scopes have got that readout you know type of pin, but uh, but you also want to be careful if you have a tech probe that has that pin and you're going into a non-Tektronix scope, you want to be sure that pin doesn't do any physical damage or scratch you know scratching of the uh, the front panel of your particular scope. So those are the only things that I'd caution you against. There's really no danger in doing that, and as long as again as long as it meets the compensation range it'll work a great speaking answer of, to a question i've had a long time thank you okay speaking uh, of probes uh, my uh, tektronix 455 has a maximum input of 250 volts uh is there a simple way to measure higher voltage than that well yeah actually um the 10x probe will actually multiply that by 10x and then and typically you're going to be limited then by what the voltage rating is of the probe okay um, you certainly can use any kind of external divider, you know, uh, to just recognize that, hey, my scope input impedance is one megohm. If I put some other resistor in series with that, then the scope input itself is not going to see that full voltage is going to be divided down. So the typical way of doing that is to use some form of divider, you know, either in the form of a probe or some other, you know, measuring thing that you're doing. So uh, that's really kind of what it comes down to is, is uh, you know, the, uh, just dividing that signal down, like with a 10x probe or something like that. But the standard Tektronix 10x probe will handle more than 250 volts. Uh, yeah, a lot of yeah. Again, it depends on the probe. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the typical 10x probes are rated at 300 volts or more, maybe 500 volts. But again, you've got to, it'll be printed on the probe typically what the maximum voltage rating is for that probe. And there are other kind of, again, more specialty probes like a 20X probe or a 50X probe. Those have got a higher and higher, you know, uh, divide ratio and are typically used for higher voltage applications. So uh, you will find that. And there are, there are also a class of divider probes. Uh, all of these 10X probes and things we've been talking about are typically designed to look into, you know, the one megohm input impedance of the scope. There are also low impedance divider probes like this that are designed to look in, say, a 50 ohm input impedance. So, for example, if you use one of these 50 ohm through terminators and a 100x, you know, low, low Z probe, what that basically has is a, you know, a, a about a 1k ohm or 500. Well, if it's a if it's a 100x, okay, it's going to have like a you know, be a 100x divider from 50 ohms and then some series resistance, you know, 4950 ohms, you know, type of series resistor to give you the, you know, that divide ratio of 100x, you know, type of thing or 1000x. So you can typically homebrew those kinds of things or sometimes you could find those probes. But it really comes down to ensuring that you don't overarrange the actual voltage appearing at the probe input, at the scope input, as well as at the probe input. 
All right, thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to hearing about what the last couple of slides are about, this trigger hold-off business, which I've never fully understood. But thank you very much. Uh, quick question, Al? Uh, go ahead, Gary. Uh, uh, I'm looking to do some uh, calibration of my watt meter, so I want to do some power measurement. I've, if I've got a setup where I'm running uh, 50 ohm coax from my rig uh, to a dummy load, and I have a zero attenuation T in that line, would I go from that T to my one mega ohm uh, input impedance or via the 50 to get the most accuracy? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that is probably neither, <laughs> and for two different reasons. Um, the first thought might say, well, since it's a 50, since I'm running another piece of coax from this T over to the scope input, um, you know, if I if I look at the one megaohm, now that's an open stub, right? So it's going to cause an impedance discontinuity. Okay, so I don't want to do that. So it's like, okay, let's terminate it. Well, if you terminate it now. That end of the T looks like 50 ohms, and your dummy load looks like 50 ohms. So now your load or your your transmitter is seeing 25 ohms at that point. So that doesn't work either. <laughs> okay. So what do you do? Um, well, there's a couple things you can do. One is if you locate that T right at the scope input. Okay. So that your coax comes up, goes through the T, over to your dummy load, and then only a very small stub coming out of that T going into the scope. Okay, and you set the scope in that case to one megaohms. That's going to look like a fairly high impedance, fairly short stub, and at HF is probably not going to affect amplitude very much. And as long as you don't exceed the voltage rating of the scope, okay, the maximum voltage that could appear at the scope, you can certainly do that, and that will generally work. The other possibility is just run your, um, you know, run right into the dummy load, and then, you know, maybe open up the dummy load and actually put maybe a little resistor divider in there. I mean, one thing that's very common I've done on a couple of my uh, 50 ohm dummy loads is I've opened them up, and I've uh, I've stuck another BNC connector on the dummy load, and then from the center coax ran a 450 ohm resistor to the center of the BNC connector. Okay, so now what'll happen is uh, when I connect up a 50 ohm coax to that BNC and go into the 50 ohm input of my scope. It's a 10x voltage divider, right? Because I'm 450 ohms in series with the 50 ohms at the scope. It's a 10x voltage divider. The impedance that is seen by my device is the 50 ohm dummy load in parallel with 500 ohms, right? The 450 in series with the 50. So that, that 500 ohm parallel impedance isn't that much of an impedance discontinuity, so it doesn't affect things too badly. Okay, so by doing that kind of voltage divider and the 50 ohms, everything is everything's happy, <laughs> and that works pretty well also. So that might be a good way to go. Alan, I'm glad I asked the question. I was trying to make something that is obviously a bit more complex, a little too easy. Uh, so thanks for fleshing that out for me, and I, I really appreciated the talk. It was excellent. All right, then. Why don't we, uh, Alan, why don't we wrap it up here for today um and if there are some other questions that come in uh, joe and i can field them kind of put them into a into a list and we can prepare that as uh some fodder for the next session that we talk about and maybe some more applications in specific i had a, a number of them lined up here too of my, of my own pc scopes was another good one handheld scopes how to choose a scope this is all great stuff so um Joe, do you want to kind of uh, help me wrap it up here?
Sure. Yeah, I've, we had a very good introduction to uh, uh, scopes, actually what scopes are, what they measure, and um, the importance of uh, the, very, the architecture of the scopes, uh, what the various pieces of the, of the oscilloscope are, um, how in, uh, in general they, uh, they interact with each other, and uh, indeed uh, the fact that an oscilloscope is something that lets, lets you take a snapshot in time of what's going on uh, so you, one can visualize. I can really identify with that because I visualize everything myself. Everything to me is a picture. And uh, uh, Alan made a, a very good analogy there of applying that uh, so that we can, we can picture what the scope is and actually uh, use the scope then as something to visualize what, uh, what happens in a circuit. Um, he over, overviewed the uh, various pieces of the scope some of the important controls, and uh, uh, toward the end, uh, some of the uh, the do's and don'ts. Um, looking forward to a future session where we go into uh, a little more than nitty gritty to uh, selection of uh, a scope for a given task, and, uh, and then uh, some of the application stuff that will really nail down using these instruments uh, for what us hams do. Thanks again, Alan. Uh, back to you, George. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Alan. It's been a pleasure having you here tonight. And uh, just the sheer number of people that were attending, I think, is a testament to the value that that uh, we all see in using this kind of an instrument and some of the guidance that we're looking to get and grow ourselves as uh, technicians on the homebrew bench, as grow our capabilities in the homebrew bench as well. So uh, thank you, everybody, for attending this evening. As usual, sometime in the coming days, I'll have this uh, um, podcast posted. You probably won't listen to it since you listened to it uh, live. But pass the word on to your friends, if, uh, if you would, and ask them to, uh, uh, to join in next time here on uh, Chat with the Designers here on TeamSpeak 3. So this is uh, your host, uh, George N2APB, along with Joe N2CX, and our very special guest speaker this evening, uh, Alan on W2AEW. Thank you so much uh, for uh, uh, helping us out here tonight with uh, a good understanding of uh, oscilloscope usage and, and construction and, and uh, the basics, Alan. So 73 all, and uh, good night. Please tune in next week for the next session of Chat with the Designers.